Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. In a corner of the Missouri Ozarks, there's a place known as Pioneer Forest. The sunlight there warms an incredible array of biodiversity. All this life, from songbirds to scorpions, thrives today largely because of what's not there, trees. For some 60 years, a dense crush of red cedar trees cast shadow on the ground all around the area. But in recent years, conservationists have rolled through 19 acres of the forest, cutting back decades of tree growth. Removing swaths of trees may not sound environmentally friendly, but what that canopy shrouded was its own kind of special environment, an Ozark's glade, a place of vast natural beauty that existed long before those trees moved in. To talk about why it can be a good thing to do some arboreal clearing, we have botanist Neil Humke. Neil is the Land Stewardship Coordinator at the LAD Foundation, which manages the land of the Pioneer Forest. Neil, welcome. Thank you. And also here is Robert Langelier, who wrote about the efforts to clear trees from the Pioneer Forest in a recent opinion column published in the New York Times. Robert, it's great to have you. Thanks. Hi, Elaine. It's nice to be here. Now, we're going to talk first about why it's actually a good thing sometimes to clear trees from an area. Neil, tell us a bit about Pioneer Forest. Um, Where is it? Pioneer Forest is based down in the core of the Ozarks. Uh, Our founder, Leo Dry, uh, purchased the core of what we have as our lands today, back primarily in the 1950s and 60s, and which... Today we have nearly 150,000 acres. We're the private, we're the largest private landowner in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Uh, his goal, and now our goal as the LAD Foundation, is to uh, both protect the environment, but also to sustainably harvest timber on Pioneer Forest. Mm-hmm. And we do that in a single tree selection way, in, in which the forest canopy is kept intact. And that work, how long have you been involved with this? I've been involved with LAD and Pioneer Forest for about 13 years now. Okay. Mm -hmm. And over time, has the nature of your work changed or has it remained relatively the same? You know, I I work on the ecology team side, uh, not the forestry side, but um, it's... It's it's been an interesting project. You know, we 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 do uh, ecological restoration that takes a lot of hands-on work, um, as noted in Robert's article. Um, things like prescribed fire, active tree cutting, and mm-hmm. things like that. And you have a a goal that runs about every twenty years. Is that right? Yeah, that, that that's related to the the timber harvest and mm-hmm. forest management side. The, the goal is to enter those those stands and and harvest timber about every twenty years. And and they only harvest a very small percentage of the trees each time. Mm-hmm. So it's keeping the forest intact. But it is also um, 
keeping the economy going too. Like we, we sell timber, we, we make money off of that, and it it you know it helps loggers and local economies. Mm-hmm. Now, Robert, how did you end up working and cutting with Neil five years ago? Yeah, well, that was my Neil gave me my first real job in conservation. Um, a bit of a hybrid journalist and conservation employee, so I'm. Uh, decent at both, but not a master at either. And uh, just to, you know, some context for LAD that's um, in Pioneer Forest, it's a, it's a very unique organization. Um, it's a bit counterintuitive to be, you know, harvesting trees, but also doing, ecolo- you know, doing forestry or logging, and then also ecology. Um, a lot of people see those things as as, as very different um, almost opposite, uh, so, and it's very it's very rare to find an organization like Pioneer Forest LAD Foundation that are um, taking care of the ecology of an area, but also embedded in the community, um, you know, in the with their forestry practices. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just kind of came on uh, five years ago as a seasonal employee for their uh, one of Neil's um, winter seasonal crews where we do prescribed fire and we we cut um, uh, these cedar trees off off the glades. Um, he was. Um, uh, um, you know, I had essentially no experience coming in, but he was um, uh, f- foolish enough to invite <laughs> me to come on. Yeah. And here you are together now. Yeah. And that that work is not just cutting down a few trees. It was quite a lot of them, wasn't it? Yeah, the glades themselves, uh, due to their, their history of, of not having prescribed fire, have grown up into, you know, and eastern red cedars are a native tree. It's just that these on glades like this, they shouldn't be this dense or, or so plentiful. Uh, so it, you, you can picture 100% shade, uh, something you can't really even walk through. It's just really dense. Mm-hmm. And the, the individual trees aren't that large, but there's just so many of them. And when we cut them down, it's it's limbing them up and then pile burning them. So it's mm-hmm. not just felling them. Because we're the, you know, the, the true biodiversity of the site that we're managing for is is really in the ground and on the ground. It's, mm-hmm. it's the forbs, the wildflowers, the grasses. Uh, and, and then those things are still there and persistent under those cedar trees, but they need the sunlight in which to uh, just flourish and come back. Right. And so much of what you're talking about, it was covered in the the New York Times opinion piece that was written by you, Robert. What was it that brought that piece about? And why did you why did you want it to go into that kind of publication? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that is not very well known, even in the regional scale. Uh, around Missouri, people are not particularly familiar with with this landscape type called glades they're because they're small and they're they're scattered about mostly the southern half of the state you don't typically run into a glade every time you walk into the woods it's one of our rarest ecosystem types in Missouri it's these these small patchy grasslands so uh, but they harbor an immense amount of our diversity so they are from a biodiversity perspective incredibly important to our region uh, and yet they're they fly under the radar. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, to me, it was, it was important to basically raise awareness to these grasslands. And there are, you know, to, to you know, zoom out a little bit for a broader context, there's a bunch of other different types of grasslands similar to glades, but different types scattered all the way across the southeast, uh, southeastern United States. And so the goal for, you know, this New York Times piece was to raise awareness for all of these different grassland types, um, not just glades, but, you know, bogs, marshes, fens, um, meadows, all these different coastal plains and other, other different types of grasslands. Because uh, we're talking about, you know, a, a f- basically a fourth of the contiguous United States. Uh, so it's, 
you know, that, that, at that scale, you're kind of, you know, maybe uh, uh, approaching the national level of importance of, mm -hmm. of getting people to pay attention to these, these weird, bizarre, unknown grasslands. Right. Now, the one in the Ozarks in particular, we played a little bit of um, audio at the beginning of one of the birds that makes its home in the Ozarks glades. It was the yellow-chested chat. Yeah, the yellow-breasted chat. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's just a bird that, that I think likes shrub and, and open habitat. It, mm -hmm. you know, another bird I see a lot in restored glades is the prairie warbler. Um, you know, bird, birds in general, the native birds, have, have seen a, a decline over the past several decades. And it just that's one of the key benefits of restoring fully any natural area is mm -hmm. it just the Insects can survive, which feed the birds, and it's just a, a more holistically well-managed system. Yeah. We did hear the birds at the beginning, but what is it like to walk through a glade? You know, what do you notice? What do you hear? What do you see as you move through them? Well, glades are, as Robert said, they're, they're not a place you would stumble upon naturally. You, have to, you do have to kind of seek them out, but they are extremely beautiful. You picture tall grass prairie, it's got a very seasonal bloom dynamic. So, you know, in May and June, you may see echinacea, um, um, purple coneflowers, and, and then that seasonal progression is very very pronounced and it's just a very beautiful place they can also be extreme places there's there's things like briars and and you need to prepare yourself rocky and steep and but also beautiful a, a place to, of enjoyment for sure especially for naturalist types right right now robert you described the trees um in the the essay that you wrote uh, when chopping down trees is a gift to the environment um you describe the trees in the area as opportunistic red cedar trees. We don't often see opportunistic in relation to to trees, but what is it that makes them that? Why did you characterize them that way? Thanks for asking. That's a, a nuanced question. Um, yeah, in essence, every species on Earth is opportunistic, right? So <laughs> it is a weird way to characterize it. And that's you're opening this box of... Uh, this contentious uh, issue of terminology in um, in our field, which is a lot of people call these red cedar trees invasives mm. uh, because they, they're coming in and they're moving into an ecosystem where we think historically they did not belong. So we tend to call them invasive. Now, invasive has another, has a, well, first of all, it's a, it's a weird word in general because for me, it implies like a militarist. It's like a militaristic term, sure, sure. which I don't like using terms like that for ecology. Uh, but it also implies that it doesn't belong in our region, which mm -hmm. is not true. I mean, you know, something like bush honeysuckle is another common invasive in in our region of Missouri, and that did come from, you know, I believe Asia. You know, it's not from even America. You know, or mm -hmm. even this continent. Eastern red cedar, on the other hand, is is native to Missouri across the state. Um, so it does belong here, and it even belongs to some extent on glades. Mm -hmm. uh, so to call it invasive is, is weird. Um, to call it opportunist, opportunistic is a little bit better. Okay. Um, but, you know, we're always searching for better terminology right, right. for these types of things. There's almost a sort of um, moral uh, judgment that goes with invasive or opportunistic. Now, you did also write that scorpions are one of the native species of a glade. Somehow that does not strike me as a Missouri animal. Like I think of Arizona or other places like that. 
Are scorpions making a return, or have they always been there, just not as visible? The, they've always been here, and and it's not a scorpion's not something you will readily see like during the daytime that they're they're under rocks because glades are open sun and usually really hot. So so they're they're seeking refuge under rocks. And our native um, uh, bark scorpion is very small. It's just just a few inches long and very hard to see. They're camouflaged and. Um, you know, it's, they're a native species, and I think have always done well on, on those types of habitats. And do you have a, a favorite glade resident, Robert? <laughs> um, that's a good question. A favorite glade? Um, yeah, uh, to me, okay, so <laughs> that actually makes me think of a long time ago that I, I had friend, I, I was a friend with um, an archaeologist, and I asked him, uh, or sorry, a paleontologist, and I asked him, like, what his favorite dinosaur was. And he just kind of looked at me for a little bit, and he's like, "I mean, it's a, of course, it's a Tyrannosaurus Rex." Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed. And for me, it, it, it's a clarifying point. Like for me, it's it's a lot of times our favorites are the most common, obvious ones. Mm-hmm. And so, in a, in a glade, you have what's uh, a grass called little blue stem that is okay. is pretty common, um, even if the you know common layperson isn't familiar with it. But it's this it's this grass that you typically see. Uh, on glades and in the fall and the winter it turns this really beautiful like copper red color um and it you know it sways in the wind uh you know and it's it's even for compared to other grasses i think it's particularly stunning Mm -hmm. so when it comes to the trees then we've talked about cutting down and also about um the burns so you know fire is a big part of these glade restorations making way for things like the the animals and the the flora that you've described. How does intentionally burning the glades serve as a major tool in saving them? So I think it's best to talk about um, appropriate landscape processes. And that's why the cedars are there in the first place. There's been an exclusion of fire. So returning fire uh, helps to restore these areas because they've evolved with fire. So um, we, we try in the restoration phase, which is which includes the cedar cutting itself. We we burn a little more frequently than than the maintenance phase, but the restoration phase we're trying to burn every two to three years because uh, in that transition time, a lot of the woody species, it, mostly native woody species, are, are kind of re- competing for those native prairie-like species, the grasses little blue stem, like Robert talked about, and the forbs to kind of fill back in. So routine fire helps that helps tip that balance between the woodies and the, and the, and the flowers. Mm-hmm. We're going to come back to this thing about the, the fires. We're going to take a very quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about controlled burns. And Robert, you've worked with hotshot fire crews 
fighting some of the worst wildfires in recent history on the West Coast. And that's actually where I moved here from several years ago. Did that experience affect how you see these glades and how the glades are managed? Uh, it did and it didn't. I mean, that the type of fire that I was dealing with in California and the West Coast is dramatically different than the fire that, you know, Neil and I are putting down on glades in the Missouri Ozarks. I mean, for one, that's wildfire. So it's uncontrolled, um, off, usually often canopy fires that are raging and, you know, um, dramatic and photogenic and, um, uh, again, uncontrolled versus what we're doing uh, where we are. Um, it, 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 the intent is different. I mean, first of all, there is intent. It's <laughs> sure. it's it's not on purpose, but uh, and it's ecologically, uh, arguably more beneficial than what's happening out there. One thing that it did bring, that it did show me, is that fire is very different in different regions, and we are still in America. We're coming to an understanding that fire can be good, a collective understanding, and that's good. There's a lot of um, PR in favor of fire across the country, but a lot of times that is treated as a sort of a blanket concept that fire is good everywhere all the time. And that's mm -hmm. not always the case. You know, even in the Missouri Ozarks, there's, there's definitely a lot of situations where fire is inappropriate mm -hmm. uh, based on timing and location and a lot of other things. And uh, I think one of the things from being out west that I learned was that it's it's not appropriate to apply fire concepts, you know, from, from one region and just, you know, copy and paste it to another region. Mm -hmm. Every every ecosystem type, every region is different, and everything has a, dif a different, a different, um, you know, necessary prescription. So, taking a, I guess a step back or up, the bigger picture of you know, glade restoration grasslands, you know, the effort to restore glades and grasslands is bigger than just this section of. Ozark Forest. And you write how these environments serve as habitat corridors for animals. And this presents what you call um, one of conservation's trolley problems, the choice between habitat corridors that protect large swaths of moving life and disconnected sites that harbor extremely rare species. Talk with us about that challenge of habitat corridors. And why did you compare it with that trolley problem, which is like a short way, shorthand way of saying either choice is going to create some harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a good example is talking to, um, you know, I apologize for naming names, but, you know, the, the Nature Conservancy is, is one of the, uh, you know, the biggest um, land conservation and restoration organizations in the world. Um, and in the southeast, you know, while I was reporting this story for the New York Times, I was talking to someone uh, with the Nature Conservancy in Alabama, talking about, you know, how they do grasslands conservation and restoration. And basically what they told me is they don't, uh, because their grasslands down there are so degraded um, and sort of planted over in, in cotton and rice and, and, and other things and development that there's just not much there to save. And if they did, it would be so, there would be such isolated small pockets that it wouldn't really be a complex functioning ecosystem. So what they focus on are forests because Southern Appalachia, these mountains, forest covered mountains, there's still a ton of contiguous land that you can conserve. And as species, as the world gets hotter and species start to move north and their, you know, species ranges are changing and there's more like um, migration happening, the way the Nature Conservancy sees it is it's better to focus on these large areas that can, um, you know, provide, you know, large areas um, for 
for con- for complexity to like spread and grow and stretch mm-hmm. than it is to try to focus on these small parcels, these little what we often call postage stamp parcels of land. Mm-hmm. And there is total validity to that. I don't I don't uh, in any way s- wouldn't say that their philosophy is wrong. Um, I would just say that it's you know a lot of these pockets we're talking about are things like glades that have a lot of species that only exist there and don't exist in other um, ecosystem types. Mm-hmm. So it would be kind of a tragedy, in my opinion, to, f- for lack of a better phrase, throw these areas into the garbage bin yeah. of, of ecological history and future. You know, so they've so essentially speak. decided that they're past a point of no return? Yeah, some of them. Mm-hmm. So to, to build off the, the idea of, of these importance of these Missouri glades and migration, I, I oftentimes see... Uh, monarchs coming through the Ozarks in in May and uh-huh. September, October. Uh, we do have resident monarchs, but these glades are very rich in, in, in floristic diversity, and that's that's nectar for those monarchs. We have a lot of different native milkweeds that grow on, on glades. So they, I, I, I just see... I, I see them in particular use our glades while mm-hmm. they're passing through. Yeah. And, and, and another example that does not work so well is Robert mentioned in his article, the, the eastern collared lizard. That that may be on some of our biggest glades, but it it, it does not do well on the smallest glades, and it, and it's it's a species that won't migrate on its own because mm-hmm. it needs open habitat, which we just no longer have mm-hmm. be, between most of our glades. And I believe that was there's a photo of that lizard in your um, New York Times opinion piece, right? Yeah, it's one of the the charismatic uh, <laughs> fauna of our glades, you know, l- like the like the scorpion, you know, we, we have tarantulas too, and this foot long lizard, you know, things that people usually associate with the desert, yeah. our native here to Missouri. Mm-hmm. It's very colorful. You should, you all should check it out. Now, Neil, your work in the pioneer forest, you said you've been there 13 years. It's still in its early stages. So where does it go from here? So in terms of the glade restorations, the this removal of the cedar is very labor intensive. And, and we want to make that a one-time commitment. And, and to do that, we need to continue with fire, uh, appropriate fire. And for us, that's dormant season fire. So burning, when, when, when the plants have all their energy underground in the, in the wintertime, um, and doing that per- periodically and, and regularly and, and artfully, we can keep these glades on on a track to, to restoration. Mm-hmm. Now, both of you were out in the field yesterday, from what I understand, mm-hmm. working together as botanists. What is it that you were doing? Can you sort of paint a picture of what your activity was yesterday? Well, I, I think... Robert mentioned it yesterday. One of his favorite things to do is just to to lay down a quadrat, a, a square, and we try to ID everything within that. And and as a botanist, that's kind of what we do and what we like, right? We're we're trying to ID things, and most of which are not even blooming. We're trying to bloom, ID them from just a couple of leaves and things like that. But we do that to monitor these sites long term. We we oftentimes do monitoring prior to conservation actions. So we would put in plots on a glade like like we restored before we cut trees and then monitor its, its restoration. And, and that helps to guide our restoration practices. Mm-hmm. So it's like a longitudinal sort of study yeah. then. Yeah. yeah. Um, are you out there with cameras and that sort of thing as well? I'm out there with my cell phone taking pictures for fun. Okay. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oftentimes there is photo monitoring linked to the, the botanical monitoring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as botanists, 
you know, what is it that draws you to these areas? You know, do you find something special about the glades, Robert? Uh, yeah, I really do. I mean, it's um, how to put this is, you know, I, I've worked in other fields, like you mentioned, wildland firefighting, and I've worked in a few other fields as well. And the the longer, the more time you spend in them, at least in my experience, the the less you know, wonder and engagement I have with them as I, as I, as I get tired of doing that job or whatever it is in ecology and botany, the more I find, the more I learn about each plant, the more new plants I learned just yesterday. I, I was, I learned probably a dozen or two dozen new plants still, you know, every time I go out there, I'm learning new things. And every time I walk into, let's say a glade, for example, I am like filled with like more amazement than I was the last time I walked into a glade. And that's not normally how anything in the world works. <laughs> right. uh, so as long as that keeps happening, I'm going to continue doing this yeah. this type of work. So we have a question about a species of glade flower, Fremont's leather flower. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, that's a great one. Yeah. So <laughs> tell me, what does it look like? I mean, leather doesn't sound particularly <laughs> appealing, but... Well, I believe they call it leather flower because its leaves are relatively stiff, like, like leather, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's a it's a neat one. We we unfortunately we do not have them on our glades, but they are found near St. Louis here on glades just south of St. Louis. Okay, um, and it's, it's it's a neat plant because it, when it dries out, the frame of those leaves, the internal structure stays there, and it acts like I think it kind of acts like a tumble tumbleweed, mm-hmm. and that's how it. You know, it's just a very interesting plant. For yeah. Sure. And, I mean, your work with the glades, was it accidental or, or did you want to be working there? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Um, glades are certainly great places to spend time. I, I, yeah, I've spent time on tall grass prairies and Midwestern habitats of all types, which, which each have their own splendor. Uh, but glades in particular just are, are, are very, very enticing, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And this is a something that we've been talking about, um, and I guess this is a question for each of you. Our show has covered heat. We're talking about that a lot. We've talked a lot about trees, and it seems like everyone is talking about the heat, all, not just in, in this country, but all across the world. What stands out to you in this moment about our climate and ecology, and um, what should we pay, be paying attention to that is not the heat? Oh, well, I, I would say, to on the one hand, glades are very heat tolerant. The, the species that live on glades are very deep rooted, um, like tall grass par- prairie species. So, fully restored glades are very resilient to heat, and I think they'll do well in, in a changing climate. Um, it, just in general, the 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 best management of any natural area is going to be more resilient to to adverse change. Mm-hmm. Thank you both for coming to talk with us about uh, conservation that has to do with making sure we're taking care of trees in a different way. Neil Humke is the Land Stewardship Coordinator at the LAD Foundation, which manages the land of the Pioneer Forest in the Missouri Ozarks. And Robert Langelier is a freelance writer and amateur botanist. His essay, When Chopping Down Trees is a Gift to the Environment, was published last month in the opinion section of the New York Times. Neil and Robert, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Elaine. This episode was produced by Danny Wissentowski with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer.
St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.